Hi, and welcome back to the Whatever Podcast with me, your handsome and also very cool host, Charlie Stone. I hope you've had a great week and that that last episode about zombies gave you the idea to watch zombie movies with the people you care about. I did, and it was awesome. Thank you to all of my listeners. I get a huge burst of serotonin when I see those downloads going up, so keep that going, please, to make me happy. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to me ramble about literally whatever. Um, that's very nice of you. I like you. Yeah, you, with the face and the ears. This week's episode is about something that I have zero knowledge about going in, so we're not going to have a what do I know this week, but it'll be back eventually. I'm also recording this uh, from home, since I'm on spring break, so I am in my laundry room slash pantry with a let's say $15 pair of earbuds with a microphone. Um, So the sound quality is going to be worse. Uh, Just bear with me. I think the information is important enough for you to uh, overlook the... the... What am I thinking? What am I thinking of? The downgrade in quality. There you go. Um, Anyway... This week's topic is Irish folklore, so we're going to get into the history of Ireland, their pantheon, if they have one, and then some creatures that I think are worthy of being in this prestigious and best-selling podcast, according to uh, nothing and no one. Get ready for gods, monsters, and heroes that you've probably never heard of. Ireland has had people in it since the Mesolithic or Neolithic ages, so that narrows the time down to about... 8,000 years. Experts aren't really sure when the first people got there, but the general consensus, I think, is between 6,000 and 4,000 BCE. Now, that's a lot of time to sift through, but carbon dating of some very old artifacts around Ireland suggests somewhere in the 5,000s. I'm not going to pretend to know anything uh, about prehistory, but this is what I've gotten from Encyclopedia Britannica. There was evidence of farming and other agricultural endeavors before any European influences got there, and, most interestingly to me, enormous burial mounds. There's one mound called Newgrange, Uh, it's the biggest one, which takes up about an acre of land, spanning around 250 feet in diameter and about 50 feet in the air. The mound was named after a monastery it was near, uh, and since the monastery has passed on, but the name stuck. Newgrange was a mystery for a long time, since the ancient people of Ireland didn't really record things. Uh, They passed things down orally. They didn't write things down. But it has been since proven that it served as a burial site, but it also held other cultural significance. Here's something I think is very cool and mysterious. Uh, There's a 60-ish foot hall from the entrance of Newgrange, which leads to three chambers within the mound. On the days around the winter solstice, the 21st, 22nd, or 23rd of December, it changes because the rotation of Earth is never the same, uh, sun shines directly through a small opening above the entrance to the mound and slowly lights up the entire passageway. This is either an allegory about conquering death, or 
may be a way to tell time. No one really knows for sure. Uh, Newgrange was built before the Great Pyramids in Giza, and even before Stonehenge in England, so it is capital A ancient. After the first people of Ireland, sometimes called Larnians, sometimes called Milesians, there came the Celts. No one's exactly sure where the Celts came from, but there has been evidence of them living in Austria and most of Western Europe, Uh, so they probably migrated around along with the times, and reached Britain, Scotland, and Wales, and Ireland at some point. Now, I say some point because I haven't been able to find a straight answer as to when they settled Ireland. Most sources say they arrived in the Irish Iron Age, which would have been around 500 BCE or so. So, for the sake of keeping this relatively interesting and cohesive for a few minutes, we'll say 500 BCE for now. The Celts arrived and combined the established religion of the existing people with their own, and this created much of the Irish folklore, but of course there was a lot of before the Celts too. Celtic influence can be found in most of the areas in and around the United Kingdom, especially in Ireland and Scotland. Now, when I think about ancient people in Ireland, I think about the Druids, who came from the Celts. Uh, Druids are featured in lore and history in Ireland, Scotland, and sometimes Wales. Druids are sort of like um, nature wizards, I think. Uh, we'll, We'll talk about them more later. So time passed, and Ireland was found by none other than the most feared naval force in most of history, the Norsemen, or Vikings, who I think are really cool, although their actions toward other countries weren't always nice. In the late 8th century, Vikings sailing from Scandinavia discovered islands that they could raid very easily because they were close and isolated in the sea. Vikings did this because it was hard to grow stuff at the top of the world with rocky soil, so they got most of their stuff from pillaging other people. The early Irish weren't defenseless, however. In fact, there's evidence that the Irish conducted raids of Britain after the Roman influence in the country crumbled. They put up colonies in Britain and present-day Scotland and did pretty well for themselves. Uh, Christianity found its way to Ireland around 400 AD, with the most famous example of Christianity in Ireland being the famous St. Patrick. Yeah, the guy whose name is attached to a festival for drinking booze and dyeing things green was one of the first Christian influences in Ireland. St. Patty is famous for driving the snakes out of Ireland, but that's most likely an allegory, since Ireland is one of the only countries in the world mostly absent of snakes. Uh, He was most likely referring to the Druids, who Patrick wanted gone, since they weren't jiving with the Catholic Church. The other famous thing associated with Patrick is the clover thing, which he was said to have used to explain the Trinity, which is the idea that God isn't one being, but three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Since the clovers usually had three leaves, this would make sense, but again, it could just be allegorical. Uh, Eventually, England decided to invade Ireland because it was right there, so they did. This would be one of the first land grabs done by the British Empire, and a long series of land grabs which they were famous for. The possession of Ireland lasted until the Anglo-Irish War, or the Irish War for Independence, spanning from 1919 to 1921. Ultimately, there was a treaty signed which effectively split Ireland into two countries, Northern and Southern Ireland. 
Southern Ireland would become free of Great Britain, while Northern Ireland would stay a part of the empire. So that's pretty much all I want to research about Irish history. Um, But some of that stuff will have bearing on the folklore, monsters, and gods that we're going to talk about next. Uh, Irish mythology can be divided into four cycles, as they're called, which are different periods of Irish history according to the myths and legends, which were written down by Christian scribes. As we know from last week's episode on zombies, syncretism is a process in which cultures, religions, and ways of life from different places get swirled into one thing. Much like the Christian religion and most other religions in the world, uh, for instance, the celebration of Samhain was an ancient Irish festival where people would gather around bonfires and speak with the dead. Through the process of syncretism and time, Samhain eventually became Halloween as we know it today. Anyway, the four cycles of Irish mythology are the Mythological Cycle, the Ulster Cycle, the Fianna Cycle, and the King's Cycle. The Mythological Cycle, or the Cycle of the Gods, which is the only one we're talking about today because of the sheer amount of information that I've found, uh, begins with the first people coming to Ireland. Oddly enough, some sources say that this begins with the Biblical Tower of Babel, Uh, when it fell, because God thought people were getting too full of themselves. Everyone involved in the building of the tower got their own language, and they were spread all across the earth. Some of them came to settle in Ireland, and eventually died out. Then, a few hundred years later, Partholon, a descendant of Japheth, one of the sons of Noah, moved from Greece with a party of a few thousand people and found Ireland. They lived there for a while, but they were all wiped out by a plague within a few days of each other. All the while, another race of people, probably from the north, the Fomorians, believed that they held claim to Ireland. Some sources even say that they were there before Partholon even knew about Ireland. Of course, and this will happen more, when two differing groups of people want the same land, there's going to be some conflict. This conflict was called the Battle of Mag Etha, and is the first battle in Ireland according to folklore. The Fomorians, or Fomors, were said to be some kind of sea demons or dwellers of the underworld. Some accounts have them as being massive monsters, sometimes with one leg, one eye, and one arm, but other accounts say that the Fomorians were hauntingly beautiful. It's probably a mix of both, but who can tell for sure. Uh, And some people think that the Fomorians were from Northern Europe, so maybe Vikings of some sort, who wanted the land for themselves. We don't know. The leader of the Fomorians, Sikkel Grisenkos, get a load of that name, challenged Partholon to battle, and the Battle of Magetha began. Sickle's name literally meant of withered feet, so I'm imagining a giant guy with a massive upper body and tiny little legs. Interesting fact here, one of the sources I used for this episode says that there is folklore around Newgrange, the burial place that I talked about earlier, which tells of a giant with withered legs being cremated there. Now, is that true? No idea. So the two forces battle, and Partholon's team won, but the Fomorians weren't done just yet. Stories say that they returned to the sea, and they would be back later. The good news is that Partholon's team got Ireland. The bad news is that they would die of the plague not long after. So, Ireland's empty again, but not for long. 
Next came the Nemedians, who didn't occupy Ireland for long either. They also battled the Fomorians, but it went less well for them. Only 30 Nemedians survived, and they were spread all over the world, starting their own people. In Greece, descendants of the Nemedians who arrived, uh, who survived, called the Fyrbolg, or Men of Bags, because of their leather bags they used to carry things, decided that they didn't like being slaves that much, so they got in boats and set sail for new lands. You guessed it, they found Ireland, and they took it for themselves. The Fyrbolg never fought against the Fomorians, so they were already doing better than the last two groups. They divided Ireland into five parts and put leaders over all the parts. Soon after the Fyrbolg got possession of Ireland, another group came to take it, and this group is arguably the most important to Irish folklore. These people were the Tuaha, the Danann, or the people of the goddess Danu, and they were sort of like gods themselves. They had druids who can control the weather and several deities on their team. The Fyrbolg were formidable warriors, but the Tuaha had more advanced weapons and superpowers, so the war went back and forth for a while. Uh, to understand what the Tuaha had on their side, I'm going to take a moment to give you a rundown uh, on their team. Some sources say that they arrived on a hill in Ireland from a massive cloud which caused an eclipse. Uh, other stories that say that they arrived in boats which they burned and the smoke caused an eclipse. Either way, they were more than human. When Christianity came to Ireland, scribes tried to change the Tuaha from being actual gods and stuff, but they didn't really succeed because they were kind of new at this whole thing, I think. There are a few theories as to what the Tuaha could have been, and one of them that we've already discussed is that they could have been gods. Supposedly, they descended from the sky on a dark cloud, so that's not much of a stretch to think that they could have been. But who else comes from the skies riding something that could be misconstrued as a dark cloud and could probably cause an eclipse? That's right, aliens! Could the Tuaha have been visitors from another world? I'm just saying, it's possible. Other people think that they came from the land of Tirnanog, which is supposedly located in the Western Sea, which I think is the Atlantic Ocean. Tirnanog was said to be the land of eternal youth, so people there could live forever. The Tuaha de Danon got their name from the goddess Danu, who has no known mythology about her, although it's theorized that she represented the earth. Danu had children, who would become the gods of the Tuaha. I'm going to cover some of the main characters in the story of the Tuaha invasion of Ireland, since they are usually seen as the most important gods in Irish mythology. Firstly, the king of the Tuaha de Danon, Nuada. He was a good and fair king, plus he had a super cool magic sword that essentially made him unbeatable for a while. Uh, next was the Dogda, who was the most powerful god among the Tuaha. Although Nuada was the king of the Tuaha, Dogda is sort of like the Celtic version of Zeus or Odin in Greek and Norse mythology. He was the god of life and death and also a bunch of other stuff like agriculture and magic. Needless to say, he helped the Tuaha a great deal against the Fear Bolg. Next, Dogda's wife, and probably the most terrifying, was Morrigan. Sometimes in old stories, the women in pantheons are sort of seen as less powerful than their male counterparts, but this is not true of Morrigan. 
Morrigan was a warrior goddess, and she was often called the Bringer of Death, which is honestly a super cool nickname. Another really metal thing about her is that her symbol was the raven. She could transform into and control ravens, which are probably among the coolest birds, and they usually hang out with dark villains like Dracula or Maleficent. So these are the main gods involved with the battles against the Fyrbolg for Ireland. Now, let's talk about the heroes on the side of the Fyrbolg. Firstly, the king of the Fyrbolg was Eocade. Uh, when the Tuatha Tuaha sorry, approached the Fyrbolg and asked for half of their island, some people thought it wouldn't be a bad idea. After all, the Fyrbolg only took up a small part of the island altogether, but Eocade was a proud king and he didn't want to share. Now, this is not to say that Eocade wasn't a good king, he was fine at his job, and his people liked him. He was also really good at battle, but his luck would run out. One of the strongest champions of the Fyrbolg was Shreng, who was not a god or anything, he was just really good at fighting. He would play an extremely important part in the coming war, and he was one of the people trying to form peace between the two armies, along with the Tuaha Bres. Bres was sort of a god, maybe? He was definitely more than human, as were most, if not all, of the Tuaha. A few days later, the conflict began. The two sides met to fight, and the Fyrbolg fought the Tuatha de Danann back, which they saw as a massive success. After this, the Tuatha sent druids to assassinate Eocade, but they failed because of a young man who rescued the king, losing his own life in the process. On the next day of fighting, a guy named Curb, some sort of supernatural Fyrbolg hero, fought the most powerful Tuatha Dagda. It was a fierce battle, and it was pretty close, but Curb couldn't overcome the god. At the next battle, there was a 1v1 between Shrang and Nuada, who you might remember from earlier, the king of the Tuaha. Shrang was able to cut off Nuada's arm, but don't worry, some druids and other folks made Nuada a super cool metal arm. Bress wanted revenge, so he went after Eocade, but he was cut down before he could get there. Later, Eocade was cornered against a river and killed, but not before he took several Tuaha with him. This made Shreng the leader of a very tired and ragged group of the remaining Fyrbolg. They showed up to battle because surrender was unthinkable, uh, and the Tuaha saw that the Fyrbolg had honor, so they offered them a peace treaty. A declaration of peace, and the Fyrbolg got a fifth of Ireland. Uh, they accepted this, and they lived. And a fifth, I guess. Uh, Nuada was no longer king because he wasn't whole anymore. It was a whole thing about kingship. So another guy took his place. Turns out that guy was terrible at being king, partly because he was half Fomorian, the sea demon guys you might remember. Uh, Nuada got his arm back, like a flesh and blood arm, so he got to be king again. Yay! Uh, unfortunately, Nuada was killed when the Tuaha Didanan fought the Fomorians again, and another king was given the throne. Lu was the grandson of a Fomorian king, Balor of the Evil Eye, which, that's another sick name. Lu had some awesome magical weapons, like a spear that could never miss, which he drove into Balor's evil eye. Uh, Balor actually could have been one of those giant Fomorians with only one eye, arm, and leg, but, again, Nobody really knows. Um, Lu became the god of storms and also some other stuff, including trickery, so he's basically a combination of Thor, Loki, and a few other gods. Pretty cool. 
Lu wasn't born a god. He was invited to join the Celtic pantheon after coming to King Nuada to ask for a place in his ranks. He died when one of Lu's wives uh, slept with another guy called Kermit, so Lu killed him. Every Muppet fan, if you need to pause the podcast now, I get it. Just don't click away for too long. Finish the episode, please. Anyway, Kermit's sons didn't particularly like that, so they drowned Lou in a lake. Eventually, another group of people came from somewhere near Spain, the Malaysians, who we talked about earlier, and raided Ireland. The Tuatha were... Sorry. The Tuatha were powerful, but the Malaysians were just more powerful. They defeated the Tuatha, and they were driven underground to the other world. The doors to the other world are located in hills, barrows, and other mysterious places called Sheed. Uh, that spirits in the Tuatha de Danann, sometimes referred to as the Fae, or the people of the Sheed, the Eos Esh Sheed, uh, lived. Over the years, the Tuatha became less like gods and more like fairies that everybody knows from Irish culture. They love playing tricks, and if someone's rude to them, things usually don't end well for them. Uh, before we get into fairies and stuff, there is one more hero that I want to talk about, because he's such a big member of Irish mythology. Uh, in fact, he's so big that I'd heard of him before even starting this episode. His name was Finn McCool, uh, which is such a sick name. I'm, I'm kind of upset that my parents didn't name me Finn McCool. Uh, and he's basically the Irish version of Paul Bunyan. He's just way more ancient. So I'm going to give you a very rough version of the story based on what I was able to glean from YouTube videos about this guy. So Finn's mom and dad were sort of Romeo and Juliet of Ireland. Cool was the leader of the Fiona and Myrna was the daughter of a very powerful wizard or a druid. They had a kid, but not before Cool was struck down in battle. The guy who killed Cool became the new leader of the Fianna. Uh, Myrna was disowned by her father, so she gave the baby away to Cool's sister, who lived in the woods with a famous warrior lady. Um, and their relationship is not exactly defined, but I like to think that they were, you know, wink-wink in the woods. These two raised the baby, whose name was originally Demne. Demne? And they teach him how to be a great hero. Eventually, Dimne goes off to be a mercenary, but first he trains under this druid guy who is trying to catch a magic fish called, uh, get ready for this, the Salmon of Knowledge. Whoever eats this fish will attain all of the knowledge of the universe. While waiting for Mr. Druid to get back, Dimne is watching the fish roasting and touches it with his thumb. The grease burns his thumb, and he puts his thumb in his mouth, technically consuming part of the salmon. When he admits this to the druid, the druid lets Diemna eat the rest of it, so for the rest of his life, whenever Diemna needs to access all the knowledge in the known universe, he has to bite his thumb, which is a pretty cool and oddly specific power. Something about Diemna, which wasn't mentioned too much in the videos, but is included in his mythology, is that he was about 50 feet tall, which is the Paul Bunyan thing I was talking about earlier. Diemna then goes around Ireland looking for work, but everybody recognizes him as the son of Cool, so they don't really want to hire him because they could get into trouble with the Fianna and the guy who killed his father. 
Eventually, either because Diemna's hair was prematurely white, or people just didn't know his name and called him Blondie or something similar, he got the name Finn McCool. Uh, and Finn means light, probably referring to his hair. Uh, one king eventually gave him the chance to prove himself by defeating one of the Tuatha Dé Don, Aelin Macmidna, who loved to put everybody in the city of Tara to sleep on Sawin and then burn the castle. And he did this a bunch of times. They were able to rebuild, but he just loved doing this every year. Uh, he wasn't a great guy. wasn't a great Tuatha. So Finn accepted this challenge and waited for Aelin, who came at night and put everybody to sleep. Everybody except Finn, who burned himself with a red-hot spear to stay awake. <sighs> He's so cool! Uh, Aelin was justifiably confused, and they had a battle. Finn killed Aelin with his spear, and everybody celebrated. The leader of the Fianna, the man who had killed Finn's dad, stepped down so that Finn could rule. So he became like a warlord who would adventure around Ireland and kill monsters and stuff. Uh, one famous story was that Finn, being a giant, saw another giant in Scotland, Benadonor, who challenges Finn to a fight. The two giants move rubble into the ocean, creating the Giant's Causeway, a geographical site near Ireland. Finn sees how much bigger Benadonor is, so he heads back home and asks his wife for advice. She dresses him up like a baby, Bugs Bunny style, and they wait for the other giant. When Benadonor gets there, he sees a baby almost as large as him and runs away, figuring that Finn must be massive to have a baby that size. Legends about Finn McCool say that he never really died, but that he and the Fianna are sleeping in a cave in Ireland, and that during Ireland's greatest time of need, they will awaken and defend their land, sort of like King Arthur of English folklore. Okay, so Finn McCool is out of the way, so let's talk about the fair folk of Irish legend. Most, if not all, of the creatures I'm going to talk about are somehow descended from the Tuatha Dé Danann, according to the stories, and a common theme around most of them is that good people get good things and bad people get bad things. So, if you're ever in Ireland, just don't be a jerk, okay? I'm probably only going to look into four or five of these creatures for the sake of time, but just know that there are hundreds of these descendants of the Tuatha, and they're all pretty cool. Uh, first up uh, is arguably the most famous of the Irish fair folk, the Leprechaun. These little guys are known for their skill in making shoes and their sly natures. Leprechauns don't usually have a pot of gold all for themselves, but usually they guard the treasure. Riches were often buried in clay or iron pots by Irish folks long ago, and these leprechauns watch out for the treasure, making sure that nobody steals it. If you catch a leprechaun, you can get it to lead you to these treasures, but another way to do this without catching one is just to be a good person. There's one tale of a poor man who offered a leprechaun a ride in his carriage, and in return, the leprechaun left a sizable pile of gold and other, and other treasures in the guy's home. Usually, leprechauns were depicted as wearing red instead of green, but somewhere along the way, they were covered in green, probably because of St. Patrick's Day stuff and the discovery of Irish culture because of it. Uh, next is the puka, which is a shapeshifter whose favorite shape is a black horse with glowing yellow eyes. The puka will pick up drunk guys and give them the ride of their life uh, in order to scare them and will buck them off. Pukas can speak English, and they love telling the future, although it's rarely good news. 
The puka loves to wreak havoc on farms, but farmers can leave food or other gifts in their fields, and the puka, if it likes the offering, can bring prosperity to the farm. Some people think that the character Puck from A Midsummer Night's Dream is inspired by stories of the puka, and that makes sense. They're both little tricksters who love pranking people. And the puka translates roughly to um, goblin or something like that. Um, and I love... Actually, I won't say that I love little goblins because I don't know what would happen if I saw a tiny little green guy running at me. Um, because I think I would just be the most scared I've ever been. Uh, next is the Banshee, which is one of the scariest entities in Irish folklore. The Banshee is the spirit of a woman who appears to people who are about to die or have a loved one die. Sometimes they can't even see the Banshee, but they hear her screaming in the woods. And look, if I heard a woman screaming in the woods and I couldn't, I couldn't see anything, I'd probably die right there. Uh, she would be foretelling what would happen in 15 seconds. If I saw a screaming ghost outside my window, that's for sure instant death. I'd be so scared I'd jump right up to heaven. Some noble Irish families had their own personal banshees, who were probably the spirits of one of their ancestors come to tell them of an upcoming tragedy. Uh, now, my favorite Fairfolk story that I came across is the Dullahan, because he's Ireland's answer to Washington Irving's Headless Horseman from The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is one of my favorite classic horror stories. The Dullahan is the spirit of death, and he rides on a dark horse to collect the souls of the recently dead. Or, you know, the people that he kills. He holds his head in one hand, which glows and acts like a lantern, and in the other hand he holds a whip made of human spines, which is so incredibly cool. Uh, if you encounter the Dullahan on the road at night, you'd better run, because chances are he's going to hit you with his creepy whip, and you're going to go blind in one eye. Uh, sometimes, instead of a single horse, the Dullahan rides in a carriage made of human bones pulled by six black horses, so the souls of the dead get one more fancy carriage ride. Uh, finally, high fairies are the direct descendants of the Tuatha de Danann and appear as tall, beautiful people who walk the Irish countryside sometimes. These high fairies are the nobility of the fair folk and the inspiration for many of Tolkien's fancy characters like the elves. They're a proud bunch, so people who show disrespect get punished severely. There are several stories about high elves disguising themselves as people to trick or test regular people. Uh, so they either reward them or make their, their lives much, much worse. And another category of uh, fae folk that I didn't write down, but I uh, thought of just now, are the changelings, um, who are either fairy babies or very old fairies. Um, fairies can see their child, and if they think that the fairy child is ugly, they will kidnap a human child and replace that kid with one of their own. Um, and these changelings uh, often morph into scary little gremlin dudes, uh, and the, they cause bad luck, and they terrorize their host families. Um, and a lot of the lore about these guys is that you can uh, confuse them or trick them into outing themselves as a little fairy dude, um, which is probably your best bet if you look at your baby 
and it suddenly has a lot of teeth and it's sort of scaly. So yeah, just be on the lookout for that. Make sure that fairies didn't steal your kid. Um, well, I think that about wraps it up. I apologize for any mispronunciation on my part. The Gaelic alphabet doesn't make any sense to me, so it's tough to pronounce things correctly. And, um, it's, it's the, the Gaelic al- alphabet is not based in Latin. So there are a lot of characters that you don't see in Latin-based alphabets, and they they just make random sounds. Um, so I worked very hard to find the correct pronunciation on these, but again, I apologize if I get anything wrong. Um, it was not my intention to offend anybody uh, based on my horrible pronunciation. Um... I encourage you to do some of your own research on this stuff. I didn't really even scratch the surface of all the things in this complicating yet fascinating series of stories. Um, Some of the YouTube videos uh, about this stuff that I found are Irish mythology, the arrival of the Celtic gods complete, the Tuatha Dé Danann by CU in history, uh, Fear Bolg, Giants of the Earth, Celtic mythology explained, the Enchanting Fairies of Celtic Lore from Monstrum, who I love. It's such a great channel. Um, they're sponsored by and hosted by PBS, so you know that they did their research on this. Uh, Luke, Warrior, King, and God, Celtic Mythology. Uh, miscellaneous Myths, Finn McCool. Exploring Celtic Mythology, Finn McCool. Uh, and the Most Famous Fairies of Ireland, or How to Tell a Banshee from a Puka. Uh, this episode's a little short because I think I probably rushed it because I'm sitting again in my laundry room with a terrible mic. So I apologize if it's shorter than everything else and if it felt rushed, but, uh, have a good week and until next time, it's whatever.